Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Before we get started this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful for all that you have done in history to prepare the human race for the coming of the second person of the Trinity in his incarnation and for his incredible, magnificent work of redemption on the cross. As we just listen to this tremendous rendition by Handel, as it has taken the words of Scripture related to the heavenly chorus singing praise to the Lamb of God who has taken away the sin of the world, it has combined that with music, utilizing the creative gifts that you have given to us as creatures in your image, in order to bring glory and honor to yourself, to help us to focus our thinking more directly upon your word and what you have done. As such is a tremendous example of worship. Now, Father, as we study your word today and study these things about worship, we pray that we might set aside our own preferences, opinions, tastes, and we might think objectively about things in history and things of your word, that we might learn to worship you more Biblically, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As I think about the subject of worship, two verses come out in my head that that around which much of the whole topic of worship revolves. The first is Genesis 1:1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The other is John 3:16. For God so loved the world that He gave. That first verse of Genesis 1-1 focuses our attention on God as the Creator. Now, as we are in our study in Revelation chapter 4 and 5 in the heavenly worship scene, one aspect and dimension of that focus is on praising God because of who He is as the Creator. And we need to think deeply about what that means, that God is the creator. We talk about how God is the sovereign. We talk about God has a plan and a purpose for mankind. But there is another level to thinking about God as the creator. And this brings us to the 25th and 26th verses of Genesis chapter 1, which, where God says, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. And there are a lot of different things that we can say about what it means to be in the image and likeness of God, but part of that focuses on the fact that we as creatures in the image of God are designed to reflect Him, to reflect His character, His attributes. We are, as it were, a finite replica of God and designed to represent man to, I mean, represent God over the creation. Therefore, an integral part of what it means to be in the image of God contains this whole dimension called creativity. Now, this brings us into an area that, as Francis Schaeffer commented 
in his work, uh, How Should We Then Live, which I commend to your reading, that he commented that in all the areas of thinking that uh, evangelicals have gone into, the one area that they have failed to uh, develop is any sort of biblical theology of aesthetics. Now, aesthetics is a technical term that involves art and literature and music, drama, all these various things, and it's as if God doesn't have anything to say about these areas of life. And and the, the difficulty with that is that many of us have very set opinions and preferences about art, music, uh, what we like in terms of drama, theater, music, things of this nature. Yet if we are truly objective, we must recognize that these areas of life are just as much a part of God's creation as science in terms of the evolution-creation debate, as issues related to the health of the soul, the issues related to humanistic psychology versus biblical truth. That when it comes to the arena of aesthetics, we have a biblical foundation that's established going back to the work of God in creation as we go out and observe nature itself, the beauty of colors, symmetry. You look at flowers, you look at the intricacies of of uh, cell structure to the uh, macro dimension of looking at the formation of galaxies and the solar system. And all of these things have, a, have an incredible beauty that is uh, extremely intricate. And so God has set a precedent for understanding what aesthetics should be. And it flows out of his very character. Now, when we start thinking about the character of God, the first thing that comes into the mind of most of you is the essence of God, that God is sovereign, righteous, just, love, eternal life, omniscient, omnipresent, immutable, and veracity. That's what's there. But, but I'm talking about something that goes uh, into the character of God from a slightly different dimension. Within the character of God, you have a relationship with two other eternal persons in the Trinity. We have the Father, we have the Son, and we have the Holy Spirit. Now, within the Trinity, we have a oneness and a plurality, a unity and a diversity. Now, if you've never had any uh, background or study in the arena of philosophy, then you're not aware of the significance of those terms. I've just talked about the one and the many or unity and diversity. This is one of the greatest problems that philosophers have had to wrestle with is how to explain universals and particulars. That's just another way of wrestling with those ideas, that, that there are ways in which we talk about things, such as a chair. If I mention the word chair, there is a universal idea of chairness that is in every one of your heads. That's the universal. But that universal may not look exactly like the chair that I have in my study, the chair that I have in my living room, the chair that you have at home, your favorite chair, the chair that you sit in at work, the chair that you sit in at school. Those are different particulars. Now, how do we join those together? This is a problem that I'm not going to go into it in in a lot of detail this morning just to set this up, but this is an issue that's fundamental to understanding the workings of language and linguistic theory because when we communicate, we're using words that automatically assume universals that are common to both of us so that we can communicate. And yet within that 
universal, they're also, also particulars. Now, in the realm of human thought, there have always been difficulty trying to explain and to understand this. In the ancient world, there was uh, Plato who put the emphasis on the universal, and everything was the ideal. And we'll see a picture uh, later on this morning of, of Raphael's famous painting, The School of Athens, where Plato is pointed up because he put the emphasis on the ideal, the universal, that which was above everything. And, and then you had the reaction the other direction with Aristotle, and Aristotle points down because he's emphasizing the particulars, the details. So uh, Plato is viewed as the founder of the school of rationalism, uh, starting with universals and, and, uh, and the oneness idea, unity, whereas uh, uh, Aristotle is the realist, the one who starts with particulars, he's the empiricist. And so this is the founding of the two great schools of thought. And uh, the third is mysticism, because ultimately neither rationalism nor empiricism, as we've studied in the past, can provide ultimate answers to truth. So men just make an ex- sort of an illogical, irrational leap, and that's mysticism. And those are the three great schools of thought that govern the history of human ideas. And that then has its impact in every dimension of human existence. And there's various shades in between and various uh, modifications and moderations. And all of this comes down to affect, ultimately, various views of of unity and diversity and views of of aesthetics and and beauty and, and music and it, that is extremely important to understand this whole issue of what kind of music do we use in church. And that's extremely controversial uh, subject today, as I pointed out, split a lot of churches. And what we have to come back to is understanding uh, just a tremendous number of different things. And this makes what I'm saying today, it's a little difficult because I'm not going to be here next week and then we have the conference, so uh, there will be a lot of review of this because... This is just so crucial to understand, and so little is done on this, that, that Christians are just, just left with sort of the question that was asked me a couple of years ago by someone. I said, why do we even sing songs in church? He grew up in, in one kind of a religious background, said nobody ever explained why we did what we did, what these songs were all about, what they meant. Uh, where they came from. Why do we sing that kind of music? I don't listen to, ever listen to that kind of music. I'm listening to rock or, or a soft rock or uh, country western on the radio. And when I come to church, all of a sudden we're singing this, this music that seems so disconnected to every, all the music I listen to in all the rest of my life. Why do we even sing in church? I think that's a question we have to answer. But the answer to these questions are not simple because they, uh, they, they, uh, they necessitate a certain understanding, not only of music, but of the broader category of aesthetics and the even broader category of the history of ideas. Now, I'm not going to take you know, six weeks to go through this. I'm planning and have been planning for a couple of years to do a lengthy series where we deal with a lot of this and the whole flow of cultural change and ideas and things of that, but I want to at least lay an introductory groundwork for this as we continue our study on worship. Now, let's just review a little bit what we've said so far on worship. First of all, 
I made the point that the Hebrew and Greek words for worship emphasize service to God and submission to His revealed will. That's the core idea in worship. Everything else that we learn about it in Scripture, uh, giving of thanks, praise to God, uh, the singing of hymns and praise, uh, bringing sacrifices and offerings, giving gifts to God, all of this, these ideas are secondary ideas. They're not part of that core semantic meaning to the word, the words for worship. They emphasize two ideas, both Hebrew words and Greek words, service and worship or submission to God's revealed will. So then we can define worship in a nutshell, not the lengthy definition I gave you before, but just as a nutshell, that worship is submitting everything that we think about in life to the authority of God's revealed word. And, and another way of expressing it is what we have in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Romans 12, 1 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies, a term for the entirety of your life, as a living sacrifice, uh, holy and reasonable to God as your spiritual service of worship. That's that word latruo, where we get our word liturgy. The second verse is, do not be conformed to the world. Now, that's not the word cosmos that we're used to hearing in relationship to world. It's the word ionos. and it has the idea of the spirit of the age. Don't be conformed to the zeitgeist. The, there's a German word for it, the spirit of the age, but be transformed by the renovation, the metamorphosis in the Greek, the overhaul of your thinking. In other words, we have to learn to think differently, not simply about God, not simply about salvation, not simply about our sins and move from legalism to grace, not simply about uh, how to pray and how to study the Word, but that with that core of biblical truth, we are then able to worship God in every dimension of life. Let's say you are uh, in, in economics, so you need to out, work out a view of economics that is related to and based upon the structures that are given in the Word of God. So you perform your job in economics or in finance or in investment, whatever the field may be, in such a way that honors and glorifies God because of your integrity, because you handle money in a way that is consistent with the biblical principles related to finance, and as such, that produces something in your life that has value and significance, and that is part of your private worship. If you are a teacher, you do the same kinds of things by what you do in the classroom, by how you teach, by the discipline, the values that you instill in your students, the content that you communicate so that your life work produces something of value to God. Whatever it is, if you're a scientist, if you are a writer, if you're an artist, whatever your field is, we produce something with the totality of our life. As, as a parent, we do it within the family. And that is an element of our private worship to God, because what we're doing is we're taking the Word of God, we're learning it within the core areas of what we would call basic theology and basic doctrine, and then we are working that out in terms of application to every area of our life. There is no area of human thought or human activity 
that is divorced from the revelation of God because ultimately everything goes back to God's uh, creativity and God's creation. Now, what I hope I've just done is absolutely blown out all the self-imposed boundaries you've ever put on yourself, your life, or on worship. It is a What I'm hoping is I'm presenting a pretty radical view of what worship is in terms of what you've thought of before. And it's, it's not radical in terms of what Christians have thought before, but it's radical in terms of the fact that you may not have thought of this before. And it brings everything in life under this category of worship, that we are to do all things to the glory of God. And the all things there is just talking about all things related to, to just what we might call Christianity or spiritual life. But everything in life ultimately flows out of this general Christian worldview. So that's our definition. Then I talked about the fact under the third point, there were two broad categories of worship, individual worship and corporate worship. Then the fourth point, we looked at key Old Testament uses of worship and showed that that revealed a right or correct way to worship and wrong worship. Now, that doesn't mean there isn't variation within that which is right, but that there are clearly right ways to worship God and wrong ways to to worship God. And when people make worship claims that this is worship or this is worshipful, then that ought to be open to evaluation from the Word of God. That is consistent with what Jesus teaches to the, says to the woman at the well in John chapter 4 that in the church age those who worship God was, will, will worship Him by means of the Spirit and by means of truth. And that's two things. We haven't really developed that a lot. I'm focusing on just the second aspect, by means of truth. As soon as he, Jesus says that, he is implying that there is right worship and wrong worship. There's true and there's false worship. So it's up to us, with the Word of God in hand, to explore what that means. Then fifth, I went to the Old Testament to trace the development of corporate worship uh, last time, and we began to see how that developed first at the Exodus following the deliverance at the Red Sea. There was a singing of praise where the entire congregation, Assembly of Israel, becomes a huge choir, and the women sing a chorus antiphonally to the men as they sing the main part of that psalm in Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. The next major development that we saw was in 1 Chronicles chapter 23 as David uh, divided the Levites into four parts and they would sing as a 4,000 voice choir and there was, that implies practice, it implies a kind of music that isn't simple, that is like the kind of music that we just heard with Handel, it has complexity, it has unity in terms of the main themes and it also has diversity reflecting a Trinitarian view of life where there's both unity and diversity and they blend together in a complementary fashion, not in a conflicting manner. There's another example in the Old Testament that I did not go to last time. It's in Second Chronicles 29:25, and this deals with Hezekiah. Hezekiah uh, pulls after there is a, a true revival of biblical worship in Israel. Hezekiah then has the temple cleansed and the worship reformed according to the law of God, which has been ignored for several generations. And he brings together the Levites in the, in the temple with cymbals, with psalteries, with harps. Notice he, there are a variety of instruments that are used. That's that element of diversity. 
Remember, going back to God, the one and the many, the one being a singular voice within a, 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 that's the idea of a symphony. It is a harmony where you have unity as well as diversity, the complexity that's there. Second Chronicles 29.25 says, And he stationed the Levites in the house of Yahweh with cymbals, with stringed instruments, and with harps, according to the commandment of David of Gad, the king's seer, and of Nathan, the prophet. So at the time of David, there were set patterns that were established for corporate worship and for the music. Verse 26 says, The Levites stood with the instruments of David and the priests with the trumpets, and so you had this magnificent orchestra and choir, the emphasis on the music on the one hand and the words on the other. Now, I began to talk and introduce some things to think about in terms of music last time. And we got through the first four points fairly quickly and stopped on the fifth. So let me review those first four. Music, like every other aspect of creation, began in the mind of God. Music has its origin not in human creation, but in the mind of the Creator. The second thing I noted was that music preceded the creation of man and was an integral aspect of angelic worship. This is Job 38, verse 4 and 7, where the morning stars sang together hymns of praise to God at the creation when the foundations of the earth were laid. Third, I pointed out that in the Hebrew, the terminology that describes Lucifer or Satan before the fall in Ezekiel 28:13, that he... Uh, the workmanship of your timbrels and pipes. NASB translates its settings and sockets, but the Hebrew word there for timbrels is the word tof, which means a hand drum or tambourine. Fourth, the first human musician mentioned in scriptures uh, is a descendant of Cain, mentioned in uh, Genesis 4.21. That's not a negative. He is uh, linked in there with just the development of civilization, that music was part of the development of early civilization. His brothers also were those who developed uh, animal husbandry, livestock, and he had a half-brother who was the developer of metallurgy. That doesn't mean that because the originator was from the line of Cain that these things are necessarily evil or wicked. It's just the point of that passage is to show that as civilization developed, man began to develop the tools, the raw materials, both in the, in the earth and in his soul, that God provided him from creation. And so part of being in the image of God is this idea of exploring the, uh, what God has given us in terms of our own talents and abilities and in terms of nature, natural resources, and developing them and exploring. This is part of what it means that man, being in the image of God, is to uh, rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and the beasts of the field. It is part of our imageness that we are to learn and develop that which God has given us. And how do we do that? We do that by starting with the Word of God. And then that provides the framework and then it sets the boundaries, as it were, so that we can develop our thinking within that that particular area. Now, as Francis, Schaeffer, I'm going to quote Schaefer again. So he had pointed out, remember, that this is the area of music and aesthetics is one of the areas where evangelical theology has just rarely, uh, rarely gone. And this is a tremendous weakness 
for us. Look at what David did in the Old Testament with the Psalms and with the music at the at the temple. Now, some may say, well, look at what's happening today with the Christian music industry. Well, is the Christian music industry and contemporary Christian worship and contemporary Christian music really in line with a biblically sound aesthetic? And that's where the debate lies, and that's where the issue is. And unfortunately, too many people in our generation, the contemporary generation since the 60s, do not believe that it really needs to be discussed. We can just play any kind of music we want. And this is that fifth point where I stopped last time, that there are two key issues in musical praise for God that need to be addressed, need to be thought through very carefully and very precisely. One has to do with the lyrics. Now, that's the more simpler form because we think about it and we say, okay, I can read the lyrics and I can determine whether it's doctrinally accurate or not. But there, even if it's doctrinally accurate, there are lyrics that are just simplistic and not very good and those that are that fit a pattern that's given in Scripture. And we'll talk about lyrics a little bit. The other side of the coin is music, and this is where there needs to be a lot of, a lot of discussion. So the sixth point is that music must be carefully evaluated in each area because... Uh, because both music, both music and words communicate. Now, let me give you a little... I think I did this last time. I gave you the example I use when I teach Greek grammar. The Dillabag's friendly miggle the rim bag. Now, that's a nonsense sentence. But you, 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 it communicated something to you because it follows the general pattern of English, English syntax. You know that you had a plural of something called Dillabag's, whatever they are, and they're definite because there's that definite article before them. And they do something in a friendly manner that L.Y. tells you it's, a, it's the kind of way they do it. And they do that to something, an individual called a rimback. See, meaning is communicated through the structure and the form of the sentence, totally apart from the lexical meaning of the words. And the two go together. That's why it's so important in exegesis to analyze not only the, the syntactical structure of the sentence or paragraph, but also the words that are there because they both communicate a, in different ways and at different levels. Same thing is true about music. Now, I have to give a caveat here because I, this always comes up. What I say about music isn't a matter of my personal taste and my own preferences. That's, that's the first thing that comes up. Well, that's just your preference. No, let's try to have a little more intellectual honesty than that and think more uh, that music is a little more complex than that. Some people take refuge in that because they, they really like music. See, music is, and art can be so subjective. You know, I like my music. I like to listen to this group or that artist, and I just really like them. Don't mess with that. Okay, and people just get, I mean, I've had people really get in my face uh, over, over music. When it comes down to evaluating the kind of music that we use in corporate worship, it cannot be a matter of personal taste. It cannot be a matter of simply subjective preference. It must be related to the Word of God and that which fits within the structure of what is, being, uh, what is being accomplished on Sunday morning. The music that we sing 
needs to be of a type that enhances and enables concentration and thought as we study the Word of God and not music that distracts from, takes away from, or minimizes the ability to think or to concentrate. I had a great example of this this morning because I'm trying to put some music samples together to give you some illustrations of different things. I listened to some uh, some old Christian rock I used to listen to back in the 70s, and it got me, and I just, I felt such discord and such a distraction listening to it. I mean, I really, I just wanted to stop and listen to it. I don't want to think anymore. I just really wanted to groove to the music and enjoy it. And see, it, it was it just reinforced to me in my own study that music does certain things. It touches us at deep levels in our soul, and it either prepares us to think or it distracts us from thinking. I'm often accused that when I teach on these things that I'm just you know, exercising my own preferences, but I'm just as much, those of you who know me, I'm just as much a product of my own generation musically as anyone else. I grew up on Elvis and the Beatles. When I was in high school, I was listening to you know, everything from The Temptations to Iron Butterfly. I think they played in Agata David at least five times during my senior prom. You know, and I have an extremely eclectic taste. I listen to everything from uh, Pavarotti to Hank Williams. I like Patsy Cline and, and uh, Maria Callas. I, I've got all this on my iPod, and on any given day, I'm listening to anything from uh, old country or old western to maybe an hour later, I'm listening to opera. You just, you just never know. I have extremely eclectic taste, but when it comes to what kind of music we sing in church for the purpose of corporate worship as a prelude to the study of the Word, we have to think a little more uh, profoundly. As I pointed out in the previous weeks, the issue really isn't contemporary versus traditional. It's traditional stuff that's not good. I was looking for some samples and examples of things the last couple of days, and I ran into a couple of hymns by Isaac Watts, who is a great hymn writer in many cases, but they were... Poor hymns. The words were not good. They were great examples of, of poor words. There's other examples of poor, uh, poor music just because you have uh, something written by uh, Bach, who was a Christian uh, composer and was dedicated to the Lord, signed his pieces to the, to the glory of God, to, to only God be the glory, soli deo gloria. But yet there are things that he has written that would not fit within this pattern. Uh, the same thing is true about contemporary music. So each piece, each musical piece, each hymn needs to be evaluated on its own. There's some hymns I like because I, I sang them a lot growing up, and then all of a sudden somebody says, well, you, did you ever listen to this clause? Or what about the music? I, okay, well, let's take it out. So I, I'm constantly you know, changing and trying to improve the selection of music that uh, we sing as a, as a congregation. As we get started in this analysis, I want to point out a couple of things. We need to understand where the, what the discussions are today, where the issues are today. And the reason I do this is because we don't learn truth in a vacuum. I could stand up here all day long and give you positive statements about this is what we want, but often we learn truth as it is juxtaposed to error. How do you know what white is if you don't take the time to compare true white with off-white, with eggshell white, with uh, antique white, with Pentecostal white, uh, 
with, you get my drift. See, you ha- we learn truth in, as it's juxtaposed to different kinds of error. They're just a little bit off. And that helps us to develop critical thinking skills. And that's part of what I'm trying to do in this series is to help you develop some critical thinking skills in the realm of music and worship that are built from a biblical framework. And that's what we're striving for. Now, somebody may say, well, the Bible doesn't give us music. There's no, you know, first music uh, book in there that tells us, gives us a philosophy of music. No, but there's, there's principles that are in the Word, just like everything else. I keep coming back to this creation analogy. God didn't give Adam a Macintosh computer. Gave him all these natural resources, and his job as, as, as man was to learn to the properties of all these natural resources, how to use them and how to develop them, so that over time he could exploit the creation as, the, uh, as God's vicegerent over creation to develop the natural resources into all these different different technologies. God didn't sit down with him and give him a book on petroleum extraction. You know, his job as the image of God was to go and develop this within a framework. And so the Word of God is given for us to explore and to develop principles so that we then take those and apply them to every area of life. It's not, it's the opposite of being intellectually lazy. God doesn't want to get, just give us things. We're to exercise our minds in the deep study of the Word so that we can develop implications from it for every arena of life. That's why Bible study and theology is, is the queen of the sciences. There's nothing better, superior, to a study of the Word of God because it ultimately addresses, addresses everything. Now, we live in a context today where we have a huge movement, major shift that's taken place the last 20 years called the Contemporary Christian Music Movement or Worship Movement. And it has, you know, it covers a wide range. You have everything from soft rock or folk music kind of music to grunge to heavy metal to Christian rap. Just, it covers the whole extreme. But the whole movement as it exists rests upon four basic assumptions that you will find in uh, the literature and the discussions that are there. And it's important for us to understand these, to think them through. First of all, the claim is that music is neutral. That there's no such thing as, quote, Christian music or non-Christian music. They, their claim is that music is amoral, that it is value neutral. Or world view is neutral. And see, I have a couple of quotes here to give you this idea. These are from a man who's very well known today because he's written a couple of very popular books, The Purpose Driven Church, Purpose Driven Life. And he's one of the most uh, recognized authors. I choose him for two reasons, because the contemporary Christian worship movement as a movement which started in the late 60s cannot be divorced from the church growth movement. They are integrally related. And you can't go over and pick up the contemporary Christian music without including certain philosophical and theological assumptions. It's like a Trojan horse that then come over and they're related to the whole church growth movement. I'll demonstrate that through some of these 
quotes. Rick Warren has stated, quote, I reject the idea that music styles can be judged as either good or bad music. Who decides this, he says? The, the kind of music you like is determined by your background and culture. Now, let's just stop there. That's one of the most postmodern statements I've read. Your values and your preferences are just the result of your background and your culture. They have nothing to do with any kind of absolutes. Your culture produces one kind of music. Uh, this culture over here produces another kind of music. You, the, who are you to critique somebody else's kind of music? That's just a matter of personal taste and preference. That is pure postmodernism. It is the, the inherently rejects the idea of any overarching absolutes or values. Warren goes on to say, music is nothing more than an arrangement of notes and rhythms. It's the words that make a song spiritual. There's no such thing as Christian music, only Christian lyrics. If I were to play a tune for you without any words, you would know if it was a Christian song or not. Well, there's an element of truth in what he says, but that doesn't make what he says true. There is no such thing as Christian music or Christian art. However, there is such a thing as worldview. And as I've been talking about the last few weeks, worldview produces a philosophy of aesthetics that impacts the music you produce, the art you produce, and all of these uh, other what we call liberal arts. Uh, it's related to historiography. It's related to lots of different things. But it's in, so in that sense, there's no such thing as a, this is a Christian music or this isn't, but there is music that is consistent with a theistic view of life and music that is consistent with an existential nihilistic postmodern view of life. Let me give you, let me give you uh, an illustration. There is no way that anyone in the 5th century in Western Europe operating under a neoplatonic uh, ideology could ever, ever in their wildest imagination produce grunge rock. It isn't going to happen. They don't think that way. The, the metaphysical, epistemological uh, presuppositions to grunge rock just aren't there. In the same way, you're not going to get uh, musicians who are the products of an existential, nihilistic, postmodern culture will ever produce what we heard during the offertory. It is absolutely impossible. You see, the music is directly related to worldview, and that's where the issue is. Are we singing music with words that are counterproductive? Is there a message in the music that is counterproductive to the message in the words? And I would say, yes, there's a problem. Second assumption in contemporary Christian uh, worship movement is that music is supposed to be evangelistic. We want to sing the kind of music in the church that makes the unbeliever comfortable. Rick Warren says, we use the style of music the majority of the people in our church listen to on the radio. They like bright, happy, cheerful music with a strong beat. Their ears are accustomed to music with a strong bass line and rhythm. For the first time in history, there exists a universal music style that can be heard in every country of the world. It's called contemporary pop rock. And so, the, the, see what the ideology there is, it's been in the church growth movement, is that you don't want unchurched Harry, that's their terminology, and unchurched Mary to come into the church and feel uncomfortable. 
So you want to sing their kind of music and have drama. You find out how all this makes them feel uncomfortable. They say, you know, I just can't relate to that kind of music. A mighty fortress is our God. I've never heard of that kind of music in my life. You know, let's sing something that's got a little beat to it. Get some drums going and everything. So let's make the church comfortable for the non-Christian. Now, is that biblical? Is that a biblical assumption? Do you think Isaiah felt comfortable when he came into the presence of God in Isaiah chapter 6? No. When the sinner come, is confronted with the, with the character of God, and when the sinner is confronted with the thinking of God, and he has been involved in righteousness suppression for all of his life, he's not going to feel comfortable. If he comes into church and doesn't feel a disconnect, then there's something wrong with the church. Because the more that society at large becomes divorced from biblical Christianity and becomes more and more mired in paganism and is enmeshed in pagan music and pagan drama and pagan literature, then what's going to happen when they come in, they're going to feel, man, something doesn't fit here. This is really different. But if it doesn't feel any different then they can be comfortable in their carnality. And you never see a difference in the church, and that's exactly what And You can go to some really big, super mega churches here in Houston, and you're never challenged to think any different from the pagan society around you. You're made to be comfortable and just, you know, uh, exploit your human potential. So... We have to look at this whole issue. Music isn't designed to be evangelistic. third thing, and this comes out of the charismatic movement, you can't divorce contemporary Christian worship today from its roots in the, uh, in, in the charismatic movement. And that is the idea that music creates a worshipful mood. And the idea there is that real worship is sort of this contemplative, meditative, sort of almost ethereal mindset. And so the music is designed to move people into this particular uh, uh, mindset so that they can feel. Now, I'm going to take things out of order back there, Steve. I want you to punch up the um, Father, I Adore You selection, and let's just play that a a minute. This is a very popular course, and and there's three verses, Father, I Adore You, uh, Spirit, I Adore You, Jesus, I Adore You. Okay, But I want you to listen to the music. We're listening. Almost had it. Had a note. That's what I mean by the, the charismatic influence there. Because it, it, it assumes a definition of worship that is purely subjective. And that the focal point of the music in church is to put you into this kind of mindset. And I would argue that it's the kind of mindset that doesn't promote rational cognitive thought 
but distracts you from rational cognitive thought. So that's their third assumption. Their fourth assumption is that music is designed to promote church growth. In fact, the worship service at church on Sunday morning is designed to be to promote church growth, to promote worship, I mean to promote uh, evangelism so that the unbeliever can feel comfortable. Unchurched Harry and unchurched Mary can come to church and feel very uh, comfortable in being here. And if we look at those four assumptions, music is not neutral, as I'm going to show. Music is not designed to be evangelistic. The meeting of the church in worship on Sunday morning is for the edification of the saints so that the saints can then go out into the world and evangelize the lost. Sunday morning is not for the evangelization of the lost, and then the saints get edified somehow, some way, as they listen to Christian radio during the week or come to some home Bible study, which is how things are done in 99% of the churches today. And one other thing I ought to note is, as part of contemporary Christian worship, this, the same things are sung, same choruses are sung, in Lutheran churches, they have their contemporary Christian worship. Roman Catholic churches, they have their contemporary Christian worship. Presbyterian churches, Bible churches, charismatic churches, they all sing the same songs. It's like this universal thing. Those of you who are beyond a certain age remember, because some of you grew up in Baptist churches, Methodist, Roman Catholic, whatever, you remember that Presbyterians had their hymnal because the hymns reflected the theology that was unique to Presbyterian churches. The Methodists had their hymnals because the hymns reflected the Methodist theology. Baptists had their hymnal. But see, now it's part of ecumenicalism. Let's not think doctrinally anymore. There's no such thing as a unity of the faith, that is the body of of doctrine that we believe. It's all about, let's just have the same experience with God and feel good about Jesus when we go to church. And that's what colors music. Now, I want to do a couple of things. I know we're running towards the end of our time, but I want to do a couple of things that I've set up to show that music isn't worldview neutral. And the first thing is just to look at some things related to art. This goes back to Byzantine art, which developed between the 4th century A.D. in the Roman Empire up to the 15th century A.D. Byzantine art was heavily influenced by Greek thought, especially Platonic and Neoplatonic art. In, in Platonism, or Neoplatonic thought, in Platonism, the emphasis was on the, what's the ideal. So every, it was two-dimensional representational art. They're not painting real people there. These, it's representational. It also tends to have trouble getting their feet firmly on the ground. You can't see too much of their feet there, but they always seem to be just kind of floating. Uh, very two-dimensional, idealistic. Now, Play the fir- that first selection there that I had. The um, the music is that uh, Anesti Traparian. Play that. See, the music is designed to do the same thing the art does, is to take our focus onto that which is ideal and to take us out of the this world into another world. Can you play
which designed to produce a contemplative, mystical, introspective uh, view of spirituality. By the way, that's coming back big time in conjunction with contemporary, contemporary music. A lot of the, the key movers and shakers behind this are in the contemplative, this resurrection of contemplative spirituality uh, today. Okay, now... There's a change that takes place. The early part of this period is influenced by Neoplatonism, but by the 11th or 12th century, there's a rediscovery of Aristotle. And let me just show you a couple of other pictures here. See the, the two-dimensional representational nature of uh, the art. This is some mosaics from the Hagia Sophia. And this is the, let me see, this image is the, I've lost my sheet here. From the St. Clement Church in Barcelona, it's called the Pantocrator Tahul. It's, this is the Lord Jesus Christ, but notice how representational that it is. It takes you into sort of an ideal image uh, more than reality. Here's another image. You see how the feet sort of float above the ground. In the, uh, it's, they're not really tied to reality in this world because in Platonism, ultimate reality is in the next world. Uh, it's this dichotomy between the spirit and the material world. Now, we have another shift here. This is Raphael's painting I alluded to earlier, the School of Athens. And in the center of the painting, you have Aristotle on the right and Plato on the left. And if I zoom in there a little bit, you can see that Plato on the, on the left there has his finger pointed up to the area of ideals and uh, Aristotle has his hand out in front of him like this, pointing to the particulars or reality. So there's a shift that takes place in Western European thought between the 10th and 11th century to put the emphasis more on creation, and there's some good elements to this, and, how, and, and, and reality. And so it affects art very much. So he's a very famous Mona Lisa. But if you look at Mona Lisa, she's painted as a real person. Let's go to the... Uh, next piece of music. This is from the early Renaissance period. This is a, a, a Magnum Mysterium by Giovanni uh, Pierluigi uh, de Palestrina. His dates are 1525-1594. And there's been this shift from Plato to Aristotle. It's a time where uh, politically feudalism ha is on the way out. There's the development of cities. Kings are more powerful uh, ec uh, economically, there's uh, more commerce and more trade flourishing to, as a result of the uh, trade and other things such as that. But humanism is coming in, a return to the study of the Greek and Latin classics, which an emphasis on the human form. See, that's nature as it is. In the palace, in what you're listening to, in the Magnum Asteria, it's complex in its direction. It still retains a certain amount of that sort of ethereal feel that you get from the Byzantine period. But it's a sort of acapella that also increases the otherworldly uh, effects. But it also exhibits a sophisticated structure and harmonic tension which you didn't have in Byzantine art, and it has resolution. The music comes to conclusion. It's the, in that sense, it's, it's direction. It has a certain amount of uh, symmetry and, and perspective. And see, this is what you see. You're cutting the music off way too quick. 
next time leave it on until I cut you. Because um, I want the music to fit several pictures, okay? Uh, this is Michelangelo. Uh, Michelangelo's David. Now, this isn't the David of the Bible because the David of the Bible would be circumcised. He's representing the ideal man. He's representing the ideal man, man as man is. And this is where the Renaissance is going is this emphasis on, on nature for nature's sake and understanding creation as it is. So part, one way in which the worldview at this time is described is that of realism. Uh, it's no longer the idealism of Plato. It's now realism with an emphasis on what it is. It develops in music. There's more uh, structure and style and, and resolution. And then the next section, let's go, this goes into the Baroque period. And in the, in the art, I have a couple of images, Rembrandt's The Descent from the Cross, where we see, I think that's a little, came out a little dark, but there's the, the use of light going right to the center of the, of the piece there. And the music that we have is Bach's Magnificat. Bach's uh, Baroque music, musical style fits with the art. Uh, Rubens is more consistent with that. It has more detail, more flourishes uh, visually, and you see that in the, or you hear that in the music as well. Now, like I said, I'm not going into this in order to give us people. I'm not going into this to give you a, turn it up just a little bit. I'm not going into this to give you a history and art appreciation, music appreciation. The point in doing this is very simple. As the intellectual thought changed, art changed and music changed. And that's all I'm trying to communicate here, is that as the ideas that influence society, their views of ultimate reality, their views of knowledge, their views of ethics and their views of aesthetics change. Everything dominoes. So when you change the way people think, you change their culture. It changes their music. So that when you come in American Western civilization to the 50s and 60s, there's a radical change in music between 1950 and 1970. And that is this major worldview shift into the outworking of a nihilistic existentialism and postmodernism, and it affects the music. Now, what happened, and I've got to get all this in one message. Bear with me. I just a couple more minutes. I want to give you a couple more examples, and then we can move on, is that in about 1967, there was a young man by the name of Lonnie Frisbee who was a long-haired hippie, acid-dropping uh, peacenik in San Francisco who was given a track, and trusted the Lord. Now, I'm going to assume that he was saved. I have no idea. So he went back and told the guys he was living with about this, and they all got saved, and they started telling others about Jesus, and this was the birth of the Jesus Freak movement. Y'all remember that? In the late 60s, this was the beginning of the Jesus Freaks, and then they moved, Alani first we went on vacation down to, to Southern California, and he went to a, a little church, in Southern California, in Costa Mesa, called Calvary Chapel, the little country church. And he decided to bring everybody with him. Little country 
by Love Song, which was one of the early Christian, contemporary Christian rock bands in the early 70s, and it's all about Calvary Chapel, a little country church. The church just exploded. It's now one of the 20 largest churches in America spawned the whole Calvary Chapel movement, and they probably have three or 400 churches in their association, and spawned the music label Maranatha. So, and, and that's one of the three largest music publishing houses in America, and music is, uh, written music as well as uh, various groups. Where does it come from? It comes out of the whole charismatic movement. There was some wild stuff Lonnie Frisbee did eventually, got arrested in the 90s for propositioning a male police officer in a men's restroom in a public park in uh, Los Angeles, and then he died of AIDS about six or seven years ago. But he was also responsible for bringing down the Holy Spirit on John Wimber's church when Wimber wasn't a charismatic, and he let Frisbee, because of their previous association at Calvary Chapel, come in and have the pulpit, and Frisbee called down the Holy Spirit. Everybody fell on the floor and started speaking in tongues. This guy was bizarre. But that's this, that, there, you can't disconnect the birth of contemporary Christian music from those particular roots. And then the the other one of the other th- of the three major labels in contemporary Christian music is the Vineyard label, which comes out of the Vineyard Church, which started with the event I just told you about. So all this is very, very important to understand. And what they were doing is they were taking Christian words and just uh, attaching them to the the music that uh, that they like to sing. Play that last selection. Um, Why don't you try Jesus? This was written by a guy, absolutely brilliant. You can appreciate his musical genius. And it was written as a song to Janice Joplin. You drown your sorrows till you can't stand up. And take a look at what you've done to yourself. Why don't you You put the bottle back on the shelf? Yellow fingered from your cigarettes. Your hands are shaking while your body sweats. Why don't you look in? Have him cut, cut, cut that off. It gets, it gets a little more graphic after that. <laughs> but see, what they've done is they've ta- taken this assumption that music is neutral, and all you have to do to redeem it is to add Christian words to it. And the thing that we have to understand is that that doesn't work. That is taking the message of God and putting it into a format that comes out of a contrary message and and worldview. And so you have two different things, two opposing messages. Now, these are a little more extreme examples. What do you do with some of these other songs that seem a little more middle of the road? Well, you have to think through the entire framework of where this music uh, music comes from. Now, that just covers music. We still have to talk about lyrics. So we'll talk about music a little more. I'll have a couple more fun examples for you uh, because we need to, we need to under, understand this. This is our culture. And, and why do I do this? Let's just stop him as I close. Why do we do this? If you are a missionary to some country in Africa or to Iran or Iraq, you need to study everything about their culture 
in order to understand so you can clearly communicate the gospel to them and avoid any kind of uh, tripwires that are, that are there culturally. You're a missionary to contemporary, postmodern, 21st century America. And you have to understand that there's a lot of things going on in our culture that a lot of people think are just value neutral that aren't. And it's affected you and it's affected me. I know that the more I study this, my, you know, what I'll listen to in music has really changed over the last 20 years. But it's not driven by a change in preference. It's driven by my, my study of the word and understanding the worldview out of which a lot of this comes. And it's gotten where it's more and more difficult for me to listen to a lot of stuff that I used to really enjoy, uh, both Christian and non-Christian. Because the focal point of the music and the words has to be, like we heard in that selection from the Messiah, on who God is and what he has done in history. It is objective-based, not subjective-based. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word today, to study these things, to have our thinking shaped and transformed by perhaps some new thoughts and new ideas, and, and help us to think through our understanding of what worship is, both in terms of our individual lives and in terms of corporate worship within the, within the church. Now, Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to put their faith alone in Christ alone. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, and by simply putting your faith alone in Christ alone, you can have eternal life. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied this morning, that we might have our thinking reformed and reshaped by your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.